Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 223, recorded March 3rd, 2021. I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Sebastian Ramirez. Cool, we did that without talking over the top. Nice. <laughs> hey, we're, we're, getting, we're getting good at this. Welcome, Sebastian. Great to see you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. All right. Well, um, let's uh, start it off. Oh, I wanted to mention... Uh, uh, we'll talk about them later, but thanks to Datadog for sponsoring this episode. And, yeah, yeah. And Sebastian, uh, people maybe know you, but they definitely know your API framework, right? <laughs> I hope so. At least some of them. Uh, yeah, sh should I say who I am or not yet? Yeah, yeah, sure. Give us a quick little introduction <laughs> okay, and then we'll cool. uh, jump over to the items. Awesome. So hello, everyone. I'm Sebastian Ramirez. I'm uh, the creator of FastAPI, which is a web API framework for Python based on type annotations uh, that, uh, yeah, well, it has been uh, used by quite a bunch of interesting organizations and projects recently. I'm a software developer at Explosion in Berlin, Germany, but I'm actually from Colombia. That's why the accent. And yeah, that's Fantastic. all me. Yeah, and you have the best mustache of anyone that's ever been on the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Definitely. Um, well, let's jump in. Uh, so I wanted to cover the uh, Python Developer Survey 2020 results. Um, this is pretty exciting. Uh, we'll get we'll get a little bit to in a minute talk about one one of the things I wanted to talk about, of course. But let's look at it a little bit. So the, the Python Developer Survey is uh, is uh, put on by uh, it's the PSF, right? Isn't it joint PSF and JetBrains? Yeah, I think yeah. it's put on by yeah the PSF. Uh, it's like hosted and analyzed by JetBrains, but it's not collected by JetBrains. They make a point of not, you know, it's it's put on Python.org and maybe even PyPI, but not on um, not on JetBrains.com. So it, they try to not slant it in that regard. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's hard to. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's a whole bunch of cool stuff in here. One of the things that takeaways that I was confused by a little bit at first was um, the the use. What do you use Python for? And um, you've got a lot of reductions in percentages, but if you look at what increased, so you kind of see that people are using Python for more stuff and it's spreading out. So there's uh, increases in education and in desktop apps, uh, games increased quite a bit, uh, mobile, which was interesting, um, and other. So uh, the long tail has gotten fatter and uh, that's good. We're using Python for a lot of stuff. Uh, another another good sign is uh, Python 3 is increased. So last year we had 90% usage of Python 3. Now it's up to 94%. Not sure why it's not at 100% yet, but I think there's some probably some <laughs> legacy stuff. There's some uh, some projects out there that are the, they're in the, please don't touch it, it's working. <laughs> Nobody knows how it works, just leave it alone category. And it's probably that last last 5% or so. Yeah. Um, uh, what are people using for environment isolation? Um, we've got uh, virtual env at 54%, uh, but I assume that also includes VENV or the built-in. There's like two. Yeah, I, I saw there was no mention of VENV, so just virtual ENV probably is, is that as well. That's I had that same question. I'm like, wait, surely somebody uses PIP uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or Python-VNV because I, I answered that question. So we kind of use those interchangeably. So I guess that maybe that's what what it is. But um, one of the things that surprised me was uh, that the uh, I've heard I know a lot of people use Conda for data science stuff. That's at twenty two percent, but thirty two percent are just using Docker for uh, isolation, which that surprised me. That's an interesting thing. That that's a hardcore isolation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, although I think more and more people are just using using it all the time for a lot of stuff. So I guess why not? 
Sebastian, what about you? Are you a poetry? Are you a Python M V and V? Are you a Docker? I'm all over the place. Actually, I'm quite a fan of poetry, and I uh, I think it's a great tool because like it uh, puts a lot of uh, functionality in the same place, handling dependencies, uh, handling very environments, and handling pinning versions. When you add a new package with poetry, it automatically detects what is the latest version and adds the right uh, ranges of versions. So I think that's very, very cool. And creating a package with poetry is super straightforward to create a package that can be later published directly. So it's, it's more similar to NPM in the Node.js world. Uh, right, because you can publish from it as well, right? You can create the package and then publish. Yeah, and have like all the configurations together. But at the same time, I'm using a vanilla Python VM in a bunch of projects at work and things, and a bunch of Docker as well. So yeah, it's uh, many different things. I will think that for local development, it's all, always one type of uh, virtual environment, uh, being a VM for poetry. And then for deployment, sometimes it's just like pure Docker, sometimes poetry inside of Docker, but not even using the virtual environment. But yeah, I will think Docker for, for deployment and then locally virtual environments, at least yeah. for me. Yeah, and that was the majority. I think most people are primarily using V and V uh, for that, but I, I can't remember exactly. Hey, Brian, quick comment. Yeah, what's that? Uh, is uh, V and V uh, versus virtual E and V a Python two versus three thing? Oh, yeah, I guess maybe it is. I, I think you know V and V was added, I believe, in Python three, but and I had kind of forgotten about virtual E and V. But there's some interesting stuff. I think we covered it a while ago, uh, uh, the release of version 20, because it actually does a lot of interesting stuff. And then Magnuson has a comment on poetry. Use it to create the virtual uh, environment uh, manually and to, um, in order to use dash dash prompt, which is, so it's not called V-E-N-V when your prompt changes, but project name in parentheses when your project changes, uh, which is uh, the question Gandalf had. And then yeah. uh, Dean, Dean is uh, a fan of the virtual ENV wrapper as well. So awesome. This, I, I mean, I've, yeah, I haven't either. I feel like this is one of the areas where there's just so many uh, different ways people are, are doing this stuff. But uh, yeah, with our special guest here, Brian, but how about you touch on this one? This is, this is big news here. Yeah, so this is, this is big news. Um, so frameworks and libraries under web frameworks, we've got Flask at 46%, Django at 43%. And then, dun, dun, dun. Fast API at twelve percent. It's the first time it was on the survey, and it's already up at number three. So, Whoa. yeah, <laughs> way to go! It's the growth is super, super interesting there. And yeah, congratulations, Sebastian. Um, and I actually think that this is going to grow quite a bit more. If you look at the you know first derivative, it's it's higher for the numbers for Fast API, like the rate of growth um, or just the growth. Um, also, I feel like a lot of people are 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 not necessarily the, Leveraging, I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Sebastian. Leveraging Fast API's ability to deliver HTML as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, if you're rendering HTML in the backend, the benefits of Fast API are not as obvious. So uh, I guess people um, probably will use it more for APIs. But then uh, there's actually a bunch of people using it for very different stuff than what I initially thought of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you can basically get down to the starlet type features and stuff, and then you can build, you know, an equivalent of Flask or Django. And what I think is interesting about that is a lot of people are like, well, I could do this really cool API with Fast API. And then do we use Flask or Django for the web part? It's like, well, if you've already got the Fast API part and you've got like 10 pages you want to serve, just, you know, 
don't don't juggle two apps just like put them yeah. in there it's actually not that hard so i think there's some really interesting stuff and i think as people learn those and leverage those it's only going to grow because they're like oh i actually don't have to have flask plus fast api i could just have fast api yeah not that actually, flask is bad but yeah yeah well, of course and like fast api is actually a, a FastAPI owes and was inspired a lot by all of these frameworks that paved the way. Like all of these designs, all of these ideas came before FastAPI. FastAPI is just putting up them together with the new type annotations uh, from, from modern Python. But yeah, like it's, it's all the work that has been done by a lot of people. And, and yeah, yeah. standing on the shoulders of giants type thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, awesome. But yeah, people well, are using I've got for... some stuff to add to that as well for my next item, by the way. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, before we move on, one of the things in the survey um, that was interesting to me was um, that uh, um, was the use of continuous integration. So um, I use CI or continuous integration all the time, but one of the let's see if I can find it. Um, CI uh, uh, the CI systems in use. Um, GitLab was top, which was interesting to me. Uh, I mean, I use GitLab at work, but I use GitHub or I use I guess GitLab CI, but I'm using GitHub Actions a lot. And I don't see GitHub Actions even here. So I wonder if it just wasn't listed or I'm not sure. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't noticed yeah. that GitHub Actions is not there. In the yeah, area. I expected to see it as well. Yeah. yeah so. But what I did not see, I just want to throw this out, like, well done on building the survey. Because what I didn't see is what platform are you on? Do you use Python or do you use SQL or do you use Vue.js? Like, the, like they did a good job yeah. of comparing apples to apples in this one. Uh, and that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess but like I guess you what you brought up before on the the web frameworks though. The um like why uh I mean it depends on what you're using the web for. So yeah. Uh, like you the early use of fast API was just APIs. Uh, so um I don't know that's not apples to apples. Right, you may be doing flask plus fast API. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. Um and and that the the survey allows that. You can you can, if you add these numbers up they are over 100. So I wanted yeah. to bring up one more thing. I guess uh, unit testing is at 49% for PyTest. So PyTest is in the lead. So Yeah, I also saw there's a really interesting number two in, in that list there. Uh, 28% of using unit test. Yeah. No, that's not the one I was thinking of. That's number three. Oh, was it number three? Number two What's is number none. two. Number two is, so, you know, in Python, when like a lot of languages have null or nil, but apparently people just like do stuff with the none type to test here a lot so <laughs> none <laughs> testing yeah oh yeah that is number two yeah so. it's crushing it yeah none is pretty i mean you do get a lot of exceptions and it's easy to like fail first and then yeah anyway so i gotta no, talk none to type the, has no attributes such and such that i gotta talk to the uh, psf and uh, jetbrains about this because i'm not sure why they call it unit testing frameworks we gotta get we gotta drop the unit off there just call them yeah. testing frameworks yeah uh, Brian, I hope you don't mind. I'm considering writing a book on this new nun framework, by the way. I just uh I I think you should. That would be funny. <laughs> actually, I <laughs> actually Yeah, it's really short. It's really, really short. <laughs> All right. Probably one page book. Okay. All right. Ne next item. I gotta keep moving along or we're gonna have a two hour show here. Is uh I like ninjas. Do you like ninjas, guys? Ninjas are cool. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know any, but well, I mean I if you are a ninja, you can't really speak about it because it's something about this secrecy. And anyway, uh, Sebastian was just talking about how Fast API was inspired by many of the frameworks that were on there. And there's a cool framework called Django Ninja. 
fast Django REST framework. And you know, I'm not a super expert in Django, but I think Django REST framework has been primarily the way to do APIs in Django these days and to layer that on. And if you look at the very bottom of this, there's a little bit here that says this project was heavily inspired by fast API developed by some guy named Sebastian. So that's pretty cool. Have, have you checked this out, Sebastian? I have seen it, and actually, uh, the the author was quite active in the Fast API community, and like, uh, uh, but yeah, like I haven't been able to play around with the framework itself, uh, but yeah, like I think it could be a very nice uh, idea and a very nice middle ground for people that is already having a lot of work, already a, a lot of code with Django REST framework. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this was sent over by Marcus Sharp and Adam Parkin, who goes by Codependent Coder independently. So thank you both for sending this in. And the idea is that it's uh, a framework for building APIs primarily based on type hints, but also with async support. And it makes use of Pydantic. And those are many of the important ingredients that make Fast API special as well. So some of the key features are it's pretty easy to work with. It has a similar feel as Fast API. It's high performance, partly because of Pydantic, partly because it has native async support, and partly just because they did a good job there. Also, fast to code. The type hints let you know what you're working with and automatically get conversions, along with Pydantic, of course, does massive levels of like validation and conversion. And then it also has automatic docs uh, with OpenAPI, formerly known as Swagger, similar to Fast API in that regard. And the reason this is interesting, I think, is because it's Django friendly. So it has integration with Django Core, it has integration with Django ORM. So if you're already like got all of your stuff done in Django, and you were thinking, well, I really want to have these this style of API that Fast API brings, but I don't want to leave Django, I don't want to have to rewrite everything in SQL Alchemy and learn the async API over there and that kind of stuff. Well, here's a way to kind of like layer on APIs to your Django app, but in the Zen of what Sebastian. So yeah, I think it's pretty cool. And if you check out the, the performance uh, here, you can see uh, it's slightly faster in the single threaded version, but once you bust out async and await and it starts just crushing it. So here you can see like with 50 operations, 50 workers and so on. And what's really interesting is you see like this graph at the bottom of as you add more workers, things like Django REST framework or Flask Marshmallow start to catch up. And my theory, looking at this graph, my intuition is what this means is the thing that it's talking to in the back end, like the database that it was talking to or something like that is starting to like not be able to take it anymore or the the overall cpu level is just starting to like to hit a limit where it, it can't scale because it's really interesting that it's kind of just like linear number of uh things for or flat for the django ninja and as the scale increases uh, it kind of um i guess it's normalized on that so it would be flat but it, anyway it's a pretty interesting graph i think there yeah, yeah and then last thing just a, a super quick example of here is all you gotta do is create a ninja API Ninja, and then you do an api.get, give it a URL. You give it uh, some parameters. Those parameters have types like a colon int, b colon int, and then you return a dictionary and off you go. And then you've got a, an API. And if, presumably you could make this async def add, although there's really no reason to do it. <laughs> you, you could, right? Because it supports async. And... Anyway, I, I think this is a pretty cool thing for people already doing Django. And they're like, we have so much logic in the ORM and in the un other parts of our app, we just want to add in this the style of API. I think this is neat. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, uh, let's see. What's your uh, What's your first item, Sebastian? So I have Pydantic 1.8 was released. It was was released one or two weeks ago. Uh, it's the latest version, 
and it has a bunch of interesting things. It has a hypothesis plugin for doing property-based testing, which I haven't been able to uh, to try out yet a lot. Uh, but I have heard a lot of good things about this this idea of property-based testing. And in fact, there's a there's a package for doing this type of testing. Uh, integrating hypothesis with OpenAPI, so you can test like it was made to test FastAPI actually with these ideas. But then now there's an integrated uh, plugin in uh, Pydantic, so I think that's that can be quite interesting. And also there's now support in Pydantic directly for name tuples and for typed dicts. So typed dicts are these new types uh, or type declarations to say what is the shape of a dictionary inside of Python. If you have played with TypeScript, it will be uh, comparable to an interface, or I guess in our languages too. Uh, but then these tidbits, the thing is that they are the, the the official or standard way inside of Python that are part of Python to define the types of dictionaries. Because Pydantic is actually a class, so this could be. I think these tidbits will be interesting, for example, for declaring uh, the parameters of a function that are, are actually a dictionary and declaring where the types that that dictionary should take, or th things like that. And I will expect uh, editors to be able to have support for that. So imagine that you are passing a parameter to a dictionary and the, par uh, sorry, a parameter to a function and the parameter is a dictionary and then the editor can give you completion for the dictionary inside of the parameter that you're passing or the argument that you're passing to the function. Things like that, I think type dicts will help a lot. And then now you can use them inside of Pydantic models, and I think that's pretty cool. And this other one is the, the that Pydantic has support for annotated types, which is another of these uh, types. So uh, annotated is one of these things that you import from typing, the same way that you will import uh, optional or that you will import uh, union or that you will import the type for lists. Uh, this is cool. I was wondering how you would do stuff like this. If you could say add a default value to a Pydantic model or to add uh, simple constraints. Yeah. So the thing is that default values. With, with, with Pydantic and with FastAPI, you have a way to declare, like before annotated existed, you have a, a way to declare those things by setting the default value uh, as a call to Pydantic's field, which is a special function. Or in FastAPI, you could call, for example, a, 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 the function query, which is a special function that returns a special object that has all the information, including metadata for validation and maybe like the title or the description of their specific parameter, things like that. But then the, the issue with that approach is that we are taking the place in the, in the declaration of the parameter inside of the function, we are taking the place that will be used by the default value. And we are like playing around with that default value inside of the function uh, signature, inside of the function declaration of parameters. So it's actually not like the most correct way to do it. It's, it's, it's kind of intuitive and it works quite well with Pydantic and FastAPI, uh, but in terms of types, it's not very, very explicit. And now with this new annotated uh, type, you can put the actual type that the parameter has, like uh, let's say it's a string, and then you can also put the extra uh, metadata that will go for Pydantic or for FastAPI inside of the same annotated uh, uh, generic type is the name. So the same way that you will put, let's say, uh, uh, annotate a type that is additional uh, that has uh, strings as keys and then as values, it has, it has integers. 
then instead of that, you will put uh, this annotated thing and declare the type of the parameter and this extra metadata that will include like validation and a bunch of things. And then the default value can be kept for the actual default value of the parameter. So right, right. Th that could be very useful, especially if you are calling the same functions, for example, for fast API dependencies, and you're calling the same functions in other places. And I think that uh, that that can be very powerful and very, very useful for reusing uh, code in even more places. Yeah. When I first looked at this, I thought it was this annotated thing was the value you were setting, like SQL Alchemy would be or Django RM or something where you say like name equals an annotated thing. But that's actually the type. It's name colon. This really interesting annotated thing with lots of constraints equals some potential default value or equals nothing, right? You just don't even have to set a value. Yeah, yeah. And the, and like, I don't know. I feel the syntax might look a little bit weird. It's not uh, necessarily like the most intuitive, but it's like the most correct at the same time. So in, yeah. in, in cases where like the strict type correctness is important, I think this, is, this could be uh, quite useful. Yeah. So another thing that I, this is not in the new release, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I, what is it called? Validation? Is that what it's? There, there's, a, there's a type with like runtime validation. I, I think this this uh, thing here is you say at validate arguments. Uh, have you seen this for actually going, you know, instead of just suggesting that it's a, a string and an integer, it will actually make sure that it's a string and an integer at runtime. Have you played with this? What are your thoughts? I haven't played with it. Like I remember when someone was talking about it and it was super exciting because it's also a very, it's the, the same idea that what, of what FastAPI is doing or similarly what Typer, which is like the equivalent of FastAPI for building command line applications. Mm -hmm. the, the equivalent of what they do, which is take a signature in the, take the parameters from the function and use those parameters to do validation. Uh, I think that's very interesting and very powerful. I just haven't used it yet because I use Pydantic most of the time with FastAPI. And in FastAPI, there's no need to, to add the specific decorator because FastAPI is already doing that. But for other use cases where, where it's not really using FastAPI, but just Pydantic standalone, because Pydantic is awesome by itself, I think this will be very, very powerful. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Okay, cool. Anything else you want to add on this before we move on? I kick it back to Brian. No, I think that that, that was uh, the highlight I had because I think it's nice. pretty Well, cool. we brushed by this quickly, but I was curious, um, not about this, but you mentioned uh, fast API does validation. I just, we went by that quickly, but is that true? Can you, for fast API, can I say that this, this data or this, you know, data point that's coming in has to be in a certain range of integers or something like that? Absolutely. Like all the validations that you do, that you can do with Pydantic, you can do them with FastAPI. And it's like actually like quite extensive, the things that you can do. You can say that you want to validate against a regular expression or that you want to have a minimum number and a maximum number or that you want to have, like, I don't know, you could even write like custom types of uh, validations for the things that you receive. And because Pydantic is based on the same uh, standard Python type annotations, you could do these validations even for deeply nested data structures. So you can say like, my, my requ the request of this uh, endpoint is going to receive a list that contains dictionaries that inside contain this key tag that contains strings and this other one that has sub dictionaries and sub lists and you know, like 
a very complex, deeply nested tree of data, and you can declare all that and have all that validated so that That's awesome. when your code executes, when, when the code that you wrote executes, uh, it's, it's uh, FastAPI already took care of making sure that the data that you declare is the data that you receive. Uh, your code will never execute with invalid data. That's it. That's yeah. the idea. Yeah. It's, so, it's so nice in that regard. You just like, by the time it gets here, I know it's all been converted and validated at least as much as the model is going to validate it for me. You, you don't have to worry about that. So it's great to push that to somewhere else. Yeah. And on the other side, the, the, because uh, which is also a great feature of Pydantic, the validation shows the errors exactly in the place where they are. And when you get that, it's like, yes, I can see exactly where is my data wrong. So you can see yeah. which index in the list was incorrect. And inside of that index, which key was incorrect. And inside of that, what was the exact error? And see like, oh, I had to put a string, not an object here, not a JSON right. object. And what, what you mean is like, if I have a Pydantic model and it says it has a list of customers and there's three customers in the list, but the third customer that was submitted as part of the JSON body has an error it'll say in the customers in index three on this field is the problem not just the name is required like oh great what does this mean <laughs> right exactly, exactly. Yeah. i don't know i don't know how you do to make these examples audible and understandable at the same time it's so difficult <laughs> that, that's such a skill yeah we've been doing it for 223 episodes i guess <laughs> nice um, all right uh Brian? Yeah, so something else that's awesome is Datadog. So this episode of Python Bytes yeah. is brought to you by Datadog. Uh, are you having trouble visualizing latency <laughs> CPU and memory bottlenecks in your app and not sure where the issue is coming from or how to solve it? Well, Datadog seamlessly correlates logs and traces at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your Python application. Plus, their continuous profiler allows you to find the most resource-consuming parts in your production code all the time, at scale, at any scale, with minimal overhead. Be the hero that got the app back on track at your company. Get started today with a free trial at pythonbytes.fm slash datadog, or just click the link in your podcast player show notes. Yes, check out our show notes, and uh, thank you, Datadog. Yeah, thanks, Datadog, and get a cool little uh, Datadog t-shirt as well. Speaking of cool, let me talk about the next item here. I guess I'm next up on this on the list here. So this item comes to us partially from Will Shanks. He sent me the Python side, but I wanted to highlight this sort of broader thing because I think it's pretty interesting. The first part, well, let me just tell you the title of the article, the piece of news is Google and Microsoft back Python and Rust programming languages, and they both... I believe do stuff with each, but it's primarily Google backs Python, Microsoft backs Rust. But the overall trend is part of the story that I think is interesting. So they've both come along to make significant contributions to the various languages. And part of the trade-off, I believe there is that they'll have some say or some ability to influence where the direction of these projects are going. Like, hey, for example, Google donated $350,000 or not quite the right way to put it. That's what the article says. Google sponsored the PSF at the uh, visionary sponsor level, which has a price tag of $350,000. Uh, and the goal is, um, this is the first company to do so, by the way. And so they're investing in improved PyPI malware detection and better foundational tools and services like PIP type of things and so on. And they're hiring a CPython developer in residence for 2021. I don't know if that position is still open. 
or if there's applications. But anyway, I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm really happy for this. That's great. I, I do feel like there's a hundred other companies that should be doing the same thing. You know, Bank of America, hello. Uh, Five thousand <laughs> people working on a Python project. <laughs> there 5,000 Python developers surely some of their well-being depends on the well-being of Python and and you know banks and places like that have at least three hundred thousand dollars to suspend to spend on IT per year I'm pretty sure you know so, what, I, what I find funny yeah, about that that uh, you know well, like these uh, huge companies these huge corporations they are uh, depending on Python and, and all this stuff and they they are, for example they are for sure running Python in CI and pip install a bunch of things they are probably having some issues with the new resolver and pip install and taking a bunch of time and like having a lot of time by their developers waiting for the resolver to handle things. And the resolver is having to download all the packages that, uh, that match some range to be able to extract the metadata, to be able to compute and to be able to do all the back tracking, all the stuff. And if the PSF was better funded. Uh, they they already have the feature request and they already have the, the idea and the, 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 the objective to include the metadata of those packages in PyPI so that people could ask the API where are the versions instead of downloading all the packages. Yeah. So it's like things <laughs> that, that, the, that seems more efficient, like a, a hundred kilobyte, a hundred byte JSON document instead of megs of packages. Exactly. And, and it's just like, you know, like it, it will probably just be like a little funding, uh, just, I don't know, a couple of full-time developers working a lot more on that than, than, than a lot of uh, volunteering and like uh, with, with uh, yeah, like I feel if uh, it was better funded, they will, they will save a ton of money and time spent by their developers if, if, they, if yeah. the, the whole PSF was performing. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's just one small example, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, another one is maybe maybe we want higher performance. Like the, the survey that Brian covered was one of the top requested features was better performance. Well, if we had, you know, 20 companies each donate a million dollars, I bet we could get a pretty awesome JIT built <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. something like that, right? I mean, there's there's like clear links back uh, to the well-being. So anyway, yeah. awesome so, Google and, and Microsoft as well for the Rust side of things. Absolutely. But it's, it's the, I think part of the story is that this is a story, you know, like that this is big news. It's awesome, but it should be like, oh yeah, and the other 20 <laughs> or the other 100 companies, right? Yeah. Well, so the, the people that listen to, I mean, Microsoft and uh, Google know that they, that they use Python and Rust. But the, I think there's a lot of, people listen to this podcast that know there's a need there but they're they're just engineers and there's the people at the top of the company really might not know how much their company depends on these languages yeah and so i actually <laughs> nice um i actually would like to uh i'd like to have some sort of um how to start that conversation document something like if i if i'm at a company how do i start that conversation with my lead leaders to say how um, you know, how do I talk to that to say, Hey, we use Python a lot. Can we contribute to the PSF? Yeah. I spoke to, I think it was Peter Yang about this. Um, no, sorry, Peter Wang from, uh, Anaconda. And he has such a good insight and ideas on, on this whole topic. Um, one of the challenges is, I think it was he and who said this, like they don't have, there's not a place on a, you know, a profits and loss accounting system for charity. Yeah. There's 
place for sponsorship where you get something back. There's a place for advertising. There's a place for IT. But just charity alone doesn't quite work. So I, I don't know. I think that's part of the story is like kind of got to fit into that world where like, well, we could support it. And in this sense that we've been talking about, yeah, you'll get something back, but we need a tangible, we get something back. I, I don't know what that is, but I think there's a little bit of a mismatch there. Anyway, just a mm-hmm. couple shout outs to some more. We got Salesforce, we got Fastly, Bloomberg, Azure, Microsoft, Capital One. You'll even find Talk Python Training down near the bottom of that list, uh, sponsoring the PSF over there. Nice. So that's cool. But also just uh, to round this out, um, Microsoft is doing interesting stuff with Rust around uh, using it to basically replace where they're using C and low-level stuff like that. So um, they've joined uh, Mozilla, AWS, Huawei, and Google as founding members of the Rust Foundation as well. And I think they donated something. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know the numbers there, what that means. But anyway, thanks, Will Shanks, for sending that over. And uh, thank you, Google and Microsoft and other companies we gave a shout-out to for supporting these projects and communities. Semantic versions. Let's talk about yeah. that. So, um, yeah, so I... Actually, I don't know if Fast API is using Semver or Calver. Um, Sebastian, what do you got? I think Fast API will match in what Hennig describes as the YOLO zone in that <laughs> article. <laughs> okay. So, what version are you on? So, it's zero point something. The thing is that I'm managing it as if it was like very strict same version where I'm uh, where I'm handling the 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 bumps. Okay. Uh, in the in the versions, but all but it's all uh, zero point something still oh, because okay. I want to add some features and do some the freedom to do some changes uh, to the, to the API to have like the best design possible. Also because I want to uh, to release the one version after Ubicorn and Starlet have the one version. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think I okay. think is what uh, he describes as that. So yeah, so the, what we're talking about is an article uh, from uh, Hinnick saying. Um, Semantic versioning will not save you. So the the idea with semantic with uh, versions is you've is you've got like a three digit number, um, and you know, uh, and there's a major, minor, micro, and the 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 idea is if if the as long as the major number doesn't change, and you're using this this package or this library or this tool, it's it's not going to break you if, if it goes up. So if you if you go from one point nine to one point ten, you can upgrade. It's fine. Um, and nothing will break. But there's a there's a whole bunch of problems with that. Um, for one, uh, well, it's, it, that that implication is just it, it's not really true all the time. You don't really know. It's it's often there's no new features, but there'll be something fixes. There'll be fixes and things, and you might actually depend on the broken behavior. So there's um, in practice, you can't really just upgrade willy nilly. So in practice, you have to be like if you're depending on a package and it changes its version. You have to you have to test and have good coverage for your own code to start with, and you should pin your dependencies so you don't just automatically update to the newest one. But you should also try to regularly keep updated to the, the new changes, and you have to you have to do it in a try and a try basis. So you you like update the, the new version and then try it uh, and run your tests, and if they pass, then repin the new versions, and if they don't pass, well, you've gonna have to either you know, pin below it or block that version or something. Um, there are there are messy things that happen. Um, yeah, and it's that. getting more complicated with the new resolver. Like if you say I must have you know Pydantic below some version, and then Fast API comes along and says well, I must have Pydantic above a higher version. Well, whatever that other thing needed can't be used with Fast. API. Like there's these these intervals that no longer intersect that can become challenging. 
Right? Yeah. And let, like, let's say you've got an application, your end application, you're the only user of it, or other people are, but you're n- nobody's importing it. Then you can pin directly all of your dependencies and you can test it and it's great. But if you're, yeah. if you're a library and you're, somebody's going to import you, um, you can't really just actually just pin everything because um, somebody might like, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm pulling in requests. Somebody else might be pulling in me and requests. Um, so you uh, pinning it hardcore is you're like you said with the with the dependency manager or the dependency resolver that'll break. So you've got to be a little bit broad so that these overlaps happen. Um, but okay, so the consequences of this just nightmare is mayhem and uh, version conflicts, like we described. Let's say I my package says I have to have requests something and somebody else x and somebody else says oh well i need requests version y in mind um and that's it's just going to be a mess uh the <laughs> so all these promises the the other other subheading for uh, the promises for semver is that if you're on zero at the beginning you can change it all you want so there's no promises on zerover if it's zero dot something all bets are off you can uh, change the api you can completely break things uh you can completely completely change the API. So nothing before work. Um, and, uh, in, in practice that doesn't happen, but, um, there are times where, uh, in the, there's, a, it's a lot of people are stuck in the zero ver, but you, um, in reality, the first few releases really are up in the air. You're not sure what's going to work and what's going to not, not work. But after a while, zero ver just starts to be just there. And you really should have been at one because it, everybody's using it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, and we covered that whole thing. Uh, I think it was Mamusha Shemi, I can't remember about the whole zero ver thing, yeah, <laughs> and calling calling places out. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fine to have it, but like some of these projects had been out for 15 years and they're still zero dot something, right? Yeah, <laughs> like React was used by everyone before they released the first one beta, exactly, exactly. Interesting, so, yeah, you know, it's quite fun that uh, I don't know, some months ago I updated a little bit of. Uh, a little piece in FastAPI of some corner case that I had for some specific workaround for SQL Alchemy that didn't uh, import SQL Alchemy but excluded some attributes, some little thing over there. And it was like deprecated, not used in the latest versions and not, not anything. And I just removed it because it was there for, for a long time <laughs> and hell break loose. I had. <laughs> <laughs> An issue that had like I don't know tens of uh, of thumbs up. Uh, I tracked the issue uh, connected to the repository at Netflix that was using FastAPI for the and I yeah anyway I had to release something quickly to get the book back because people were already depending on that and it's like yeah, yeah. Well, you have this problem that you have so many consumers of I mean twelve percent of all web frameworks are fast API at the moment. That's a lot of people using their library, touching the corners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to touch on with this is um, I do like uh, Hinnick's uh, instructions on what you should do about this, you should have testing. But one of the things that we didn't bring up yet so far is if you test something against a, an update and it doesn't work, it might not be an intentional break in the API or the behavior. Um, look into it and maybe notify the maintainers that there's yeah. there's a that you are depending on some behavior that it broke. Almost um, all the stuff is on GitHub, and you can file an issue, yeah, at, um, potentially or something like that. And don't don't just get mad. People didn't break you on purpose, so 
Be nice. <laughs> start out. Start out with a, uh, a generosity in your thoughts. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of comments in the live stream. Thank you. I'm going to just try to like circle back on a few things. One, Magnus asks, "How do you say or talk about, you know, verbally the square brackets in Pydantic, or even typing just iterable square bracket int bracket?" I've always said iterable of int, just like you would use for generics or um, templates in C++, like iterable of int. I don't know. What do you guys say? I have no idea. I would ask uh, <laughs> Ivan Levinsky or maybe Luca Langa could say, like, what is the actual term? I think it's one of those dunder that doesn't have a name yet. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Dean has an interesting comment on um, versioning, <laughs> Brian. Talk, talking about versioning. Why is Brian not updating his Chrome? There's a big update button right there. And then uh, this one uh, for you, Sebastian. Although I believe we touched on this, RJL, um, a little bit ago. Um, any chance to ask a fast API question? Will it ever become a web server like Django or Flask more than an API engine? Um, yeah, absolutely. So the uh, fast API uh, will you can use you can do everything that you can do with Flask or Django with fast API. You can render Jinja templates in the backend if you want. Uh, fast API will not include an ORM by default because uh, that will compromise on tying it to a database and to a type right, of right. database. And well, Flask doesn't as well, right? Like Flask says, exactly. go, go pick Mongo, yeah. You're right. go, You're right. go yeah. pick SQL Alchemy, something like that. You're right. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. Uh, comparing to Flask, uh, Fast API will be pretty much comparable. Uh, yeah. I think, I think it's super least. comparable. And you know, I also I created the the decorators that you can put on the the templates to uh, on the, of course, the you API endpoints to have like a chameleon template or a, fa a flat um, sorry Jinja two template. And then yeah, I'm actually working on a course. I haven't told you, Sebastian. The course that I'm going to release is building um, proper web apps with fast API plus APIs, like sort of factoring that stuff in and, and like doing forms and stuff like that. Nice, that's very cool. So yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. All right. So cool. Uh, RJL likes the, the ORM news. Um, yeah, you can pick that. And then also, uh, Sebastian, you had such a good tweet a while ago, and um, Robert Robinson wants to just touch on that. When will it be possible to have four years of experience with fast APIs as companies are still yearning for it? Tell people about your tweet. <laughs> you know, it's fun that, that, that I, I tweeted something for, for those that maybe probably didn't see it. I tweeted something uh, uh, half a year ago. It was saying, uh, I saw a job post. Uh, requiring four plus years of experience of FastAPI. I couldn't apply because I only have 1.5 years of experience since I created the thing. So maybe it's time to reevaluate <laughs> the, the experience is equal to, to skill set. Uh, but like a bunch of people seem to have liked it because they retweeted <laughs> it like crazy. My Twitter app broke. Uh, <laughs> And now recently, I don't know why, they started retweeting it again and sharing screenshots of it on LinkedIn and tagging me. And <laughs> by this point, I have two years of experience with FastAPI. So that is no longer true. So now we, it, it'll be like 20, uh, what, 2023? Yeah, 2023, these things will be legit. Then you could apply for that job. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Show us what you want. I will get a job there. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are getting uh, long in the show, so maybe our next two items should be kind of short, but uh, Sebastian, the next one's yours. Yeah, this will be short. Uh, OpenAPI 3.1.0 was released recently. FastAPI is based on OpenAPI, so it's important for FastAPI uh, and for whoever is using FastAPI. Uh, OpenAPI 3.1.0 doesn't change much. Uh, it adds uh, more compatibility underneath, so now it's based on the latest version of a JSON schema, which means that 
if you do things like, for example, automatic React components based on JSON schema, now they will be able to share the same schema as OpenAPI. The, the previous OpenAPI was based on a very old version of JSON schema, and the new one is based on the latest version. So we will have like all the compatibility all around the place in all the, all the different uh, tools. So that's, that's uh, great. And it will allow like a lot of interoperability and integration with other, with other tools. Yeah. Yeah. For people who don't know, if you run a fast API, API site and you go to slash docs, it'll generate a whole form that gives you information about the Pydantic models that are exchanged, the validation that happens, even lets you try it out, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's related to this, yeah? Yeah. And OpenAPI is an open standard that is held, uh, is held by the Linux Foundation and it uses JSON schema, which is another open standard, which is an in progress RFC, an inter internet standard. And OpenAPI also uses OAuth2, which is another standard. So it's all based on standards. When you when you build an application with FastAPI, it's all based on standards, and you get an application built on standards. Having this compatibility between these different standards and having all them synchronized now uh, will uh, improve a lot all, all that uh, interaction between those different things. Yeah, that's really cool. That that's awesome. Very nice. So Brian, that's our our items, right? Anything you want to throw out there? Um, I am wearing this lovely NOAA shirt from uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, thanks to um, uh, Matthew Kasari and NOAA for the great shirt. They sent it as a thank you for speaking to them a couple weeks ago. And that's really cool. They also sent a couple shirts for my daughters. And that was nice. Thanks. Yeah, fantastic. That's, that's really cool. Uh, I'm sure there's neat Python stuff there. Yeah. So uh, anybody want me to, to speak at their company and I'll uh, and send me a shirt, I'll wear it on, online. <laughs> Fantastic. Sebastian, we always throw out just little extra items. If uh, people, if you got anything extra you want to let people know about, anything you want to share? I just got curious recently about IDOM, which is a kind of React in Python, and you can use it uh, through Jupyter. That's, um, it seemed quite interesting. I'm, I, I haven't played much with it. I know I just checked the first demo that it works. It's, uh, it's a bit mind bending, but it's quite, quite an interesting experiment. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Very cool. People should check that out. And Brian, uh, it's true. <laughs> Everyone has a price. Everyone has a price. Some people, it's just a t-shirt. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. I got a, a four things I want to throw out there in the joke. I'll make these all super, super quick. So first of all, I wrote, I've been you know, with all of my courses. It's always like, oh, do you need Python? Do you have the right version of Python? Are you on Windows? Oh, then here's what you're going to need to do to get your, like, here's how you check it. You don't type Python 3. That will never work. You type Python. Unless you run a certain version of Windows 10, then it'll report that it's not there. But like, there's just like, oh my God, what is happening? I just couldn't take it anymore. So I finally broke down and wrote a, I don't have Python. I need Python. What do I do? Oh, I'm on Mac OS. Okay. So then here's how you find out if you have Python and is a good version. If not, here's three or four options for each OS, the benefits, pros, and the cons of potentially, say, using Homebrew and then how you install if you want to oh, go down that nice. path. And so, uh, anyway, I'll put a link into the show notes so people care about that. Nice. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> absolutely welcome. And last time I was so excited, still am excited, about Boto3 type annotations. But someone pointed out that this, if you noticed the last updated two years ago, there's a deprecated, oh, there's a fork over here. And if you go to that, it goes, you go down like, oh, no, 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 this is deprecated. It's over here. Eventually, you end up at this MyPy Boto3 builder that uses MyPy to dynamically generate the type stubs for that are compatible with VS Code and PyCharm and so on for the Boto library. So... If you're really super interested in that thing I covered last time, you know, check this out. Follow the GitHub uh, thing. And but use also, it fast before it's deprecated. <laughs> yes, exactly, again. exactly. And, <laughs> and that comes from uh, Dean Linksom, who is also on the live stream. So thank you for that, Dean. That's awesome. Uh, 
we had Brett Cannon on the show. Was that last time or time before? That was the last time, right? Uh, uh, very, very recently, we had Brett Cannon come talk about uh, various things, including the pattern matching stuff. He also talked about Python Launcher, and we threw out like, hey, if I'm in a subdirectory of some project, then somewhere up there's a virtual environment, and I just try to run it, it should automatically find the whole project sort of ambient virtual environment. So he apparently added that for us. Yeah, I just tried it this morning. It's awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Nice. Uh, then last thing, I'm thinking of doing an Ask Me Anything Talk Python episode where I get some people in the audience to interview me and ask the questions of the audience just about the show. So I'll put a link in the show notes. If you have a question you would like to ask on Talk Python and make it part of the Ask Me Anything, we'll do that. And we'll live stream it on YouTube as well. All right. So that's all my, my extra items. Um, we need a joke. We need a joke. All right. Well, last time I really enjoyed this one. So I thought um, the, the the funny code comments. So I thought we might come back to this. Uh, sure. So, so, um, I think uh, I'll kick it off, I guess, and then Brian, you next, and then Sebastian, you can you can pick up the third one. How's that sound? Sure. <laughs> awesome. All right. So here's a comment that kind of misunderstands uh, exception handling constructs. <laughs> <laughs> it says, try, finally, comment in the finally block. Should never happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they meant try exception never happen. But no, no, no. Try finally. That probably almost always happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good one, right? All right, Brian, you're up next. Oh, okay. So comment that says, uh, looks like C code because of the comment style, but um, you may think you know what the following code does, but you don't. Trust me, fiddle with it, and you'll spend many a sleepless night cursing the moment you thought you'd be clever enough to optimize the code below. Now close this file and go play with something else. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Sebastian, the next one's yours. So there's this uh, declaration of a constant integer with a name of capitals T-E-N, so 10, and the value is the number 10. And the comment says, as if the value of 10 will fluctuate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't want magic numbers in your code, like like blue might be better than some hexadecimal number, or like max limit might be 10. But just the word 10, there's no reason for that. That's awesome. All right, I'll do the next one here. I am not responsible for this code. They made me write it against my will. It's the next one. So uh, if this code works, it was written by Paul. If not, we don't know who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Uh, and then the last one says, option, so is the declaration of options dot batch size is equal to 300. And then the comment says, Madness, and then screams, this is Sparta. <laughs> this is Sparta. <laughs> They're from the movie 300. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Awesome. Well, those are some really good, important comments, all of them. I, I think the Sparta one kind of inspires. You're like, we're going to go to batch size 300. Let's do this. The others, <laughs> I don't know about them so much. <laughs> no, I'm going to start doing the, uh, if if this code works, it's written by me. Um, but, you <laughs> okay. know, we have version control. You can can just look it up yeah that's true there is blame well um that was fun we're done thanks everybody for joining us uh um thank you sebastian for joining us this was great thank you for yeah. the invitation thanks everyone for listening to my weird voice <laughs> thanks for well, having sebastian it was great to have you here thank you <laughs> it was awesome thank, thank you. you yeah bye everyone bye brian bye